You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hey, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with, with Charles Kenny, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. Got a past at the World Bank and other places. And of course, you're the author of a bunch of books. I was going to say that this was the most recent, The Plague Cycle, but I just found out that you have an even more recent book, which we'll have to talk about, which is called Your World Better, and it's targeting kids. And I'm thinking like, wait, development economics for kids like that just seems like an oxymoron but okay we'll get into that and i mean it's not it's even adults don't really always find it that interesting so you know we're gonna figure out how you did that but then you have a couple other books including this one getting better which i think i read about a decade ago or so and and then there's one called upside of down welcome charles thanks very much for having me before we jump into this book here about the plague cycle because you know i think in this book you reference a lot of the same themes that that, that were in this book getting better and this book is really like a very, I would say it's a very optimistic book, even though there's there's a whole bunch in the book about income disparities and how there's been a lack of progress in terms of income in a lot of areas. And in fact, some of the things that you say are, you know, I found interesting, like the income per capita in, say, the Democratic Republic of the Congo was comparable to Roman occupation of Britain, which, you know, it's like, okay, that's pessimistic. But then you highlight all of the advancements that have happened in the area of health and, and education and, and so forth. I think in the 20th century, what, what are sort of the main things that we should be proud of, of in, in the 20th century in terms of economic development or, you know, human development? Yeah, I think there is a, a lot to be proud of, which is not to say everything has gone perfectly. And indeed, you know, we didn't even need the last year to know that. But if you look at global trends, even in income, but even more in, in health, you know, worldwide, the average life expectancy a century ago was you know around 30 years. Now it's, it's up around 70. If you look at education, that was the preserve of a small minority a century ago. And now, you know, even in the poorest countries, we're seeing 80, 90% of people in primary school, at least, there's a, you know, a long way to go, but they're at least in school for some time. Sometimes even learning. If you look at global trends in violence, at least in warfare, they've been on the decline at least sort of since middle of the last century, at least since the Second World War. Democracy, if you go back a century, obviously most of the world was uh, living in. Now we've seen backsliding in democracy over the last 10 years. You know, if I was to update the book today, I'd be a little less confident on democracy than I was 10 years ago, but still, you know, huge progress over the last century. So, you know, beer consumption, access to infrastructure, <laughs> Sort of name your measure of the quality of life. And pretty much it's getting better. And sort of the even more positive thing is it's getting better in fast in places where it was furthest behind before. So progress in some of the least healthy countries towards better health has been faster than it's been in the most healthy countries. Progress towards education has been faster in, in some of the places that were had the lowest levels of literacy and, and schooling than it's been in the countries that previously had the, the best education. So we're seeing a convergence in the quality of life worldwide, if you will, but a convergence upwards, the, the kind of convergence you want. So wait, is beer consumption per capita a indicator that is that you follow at, at the Center for Global Development? No. <laughs> and I should admit, you know, some beer is good, lots of beer is bad. And so I don't want to push too hard on that. But, you know, we're converging from a fairly low level. So I think we can 
still call it a positive. It more broadly, it reflects, you know, greater access to consumer products of one kind or another, perhaps more uh, universally considered a good. If you look at what's happened to access to a telephone over the last 30 or 40 years, it's gone from something that, you know, in, in poorer developing countries, a few people in the capital city would have access. And now, even in the poorest developing countries, you're seeing, you know, mobile access rates, you know, climbing into the 70s and 80%. So it's just, you know, a huge amount of progress on a huge range of different indicators. I should also say that some indicators have been going backwards. So while we've seen real progress in local air pollution, the number of people who are dying from living in a house full of dirty air is going down. The number of people who are dying from living in a city with dirty air is going down. Obviously, we face the growing challenge of climate change. And if you look at biodiversity indicators, they're going horribly in the wrong direction. So I don't mean to suggest that you know, everything is perfect, but human quality of life has been trending strongly in the right direction over the last century. Now, I think most people focus on things like GDP per capita. I think most of the development agencies focus on things like GDP per capita. And not to say that those haven't been improving, they certainly haven't been improving to the degree that these other indicators have been improving, you know, the health and education and so forth. Is there something, I mean, why, first of all, do international agencies focus so much on kind of the, you know, market economy output indicators? And is there a better metric that we should be using that would aggregate all of these other indicators to measure quality of life. I mean, if you have one out of four of your children dying before the age of five, and then you go to a situation where it's one out of 25, and there's no corresponding increase in, in output per capita, I would still think that should count as a substantial increase in, in quality of life. Yeah, I agree. One of the big things driving all of this improvement is the quality of life has got cheaper. So at the same income per capita, the outcomes you can expect in terms of life expectancy or child mortality or education rates and so on has hugely improved. With health, the story is fairly obvious. Vaccines thankfully, are fairly cheap and are saving lots of lives. Bed nets are fairly cheap. Oral rehydration, which is a treatment that can stop most of the deaths that happen from diarrhea worldwide, involves sugar and salt and water, and it doesn't even need to be terribly clean water. So we've got all of these very cheap technologies that just have improved life chances at a young age. And sort of to your question of, you know, is income per capita the right measure? I think it's a really important measure. But if you force me to just choose one measure of human progress, it would be what you mentioned. It would be about child and infant mortality. And I think, you know, the fact that we've gone from a world where the average parent would see a child die before the age of five, see one of their children, you know, bury one of their children before the age of five, to one where even in the poorest countries, that's a fairly rare event, is the best single measure of the quality of life we have. Now, income does still matter. You can see that in all sorts of ways. Obviously, you need a certain amount of income to be able to afford the basics, to be able to afford decent nutrition, to be able to afford access even to cheap medicines and so on. And income per capita is a correlate with, even if, you know, I don't want to go as far as strong causal, but a correlate with a whole bunch of things we care about, including relative measures of health and education and so on. So income still really matters. Is it the be all and end all? No. And and I think we should be you know, widening out our gaze. And, and that's been a, a long-standing argument in development, at least. If you look at the United Nations uh, Development Programme, for example, it focuses on the Human Development Index, which has a measure of income, a measure of health, and a measure of education. And they keep on adding more bits to it, right? So recently, they've started thinking about gender equality, which I think is great. But so we should be thinking much more broadly than just income when we're thinking 
thinking of a quality of life, even though I still strongly believe income is an important, you know, one important indicator of a good quality of life. Now, you also walk through an intellect, at least in the book, Getting Better, you have kind of a, almost an intellectual history of development economics. And you talk about the, I don't think you mentioned by name, but the big push concept, which was the dominant view of things in the 50s and 60s, uh, which was all about just injecting capital into these countries, which had decidedly mixed results and how that evolved into, you know, a transfer of know-how, transfer of knowledge, and then a couple other iterations. If we were to look at what has worked and what hasn't worked and what has led to these improvements and, and what has been disappointing, what can we say about this intellectual history and kind of where are we right now in, in terms of how we think about, I hesitate to call it development, improving life conditions? It's a complex story. Some things have worked some places and not others, you know, depending on the time, depending on the country and so on. But if I was to massively oversimplify, we've gone from thinking the primary barrier to economic growth in the poorest countries is, is physical capital, is stuff, is roads, is factories and so on, to thinking that that's important, but actually Maybe what matters more is, is health and education. It's the human capital, having workers who are fit and educated. And then we kind of added on top of that, well, you know, maybe, maybe the infrastructure is still important and the human capital is still important, but, but maybe also so are the policies, you know, being open to trade and exchange not having a currency that is, is impossible to exchange, maybe thinking about privatization and so on, although that's, you know, the more controversial end of the story. And then we kind of decided, well, doesn't seem like that's always working either. So maybe it's about the, the human capital and the physical capital and the policies, but all of those are sort of somewhat determined by institutions, by the the rules of the game, if you will. So your constitutional system, do you have a good judiciary thinking about democratic systems and so on? And I think that the bottom line is all of this stuff matters. <laughs> And you need to have sort of the right mix at the right moment in order for things to work. And frankly, some of it's luck. You know, if you're in the right place at the right time, you do very well. And it's been really hard to come up with a foolproof recipe of how you do this. Frankly, nobody pretty much in the development economics field would have said 30 years ago, oh, I know the country that's going to grow faster than any other for any period in history ever before. It's going to be China. And maybe there was one, you know, randomly, there's going to have been one, right? But it was certainly not a, a dominant view of the profession. I think it came a bit out of left field to most of us, I mean, in, including me. And we're really not quite sure what the recipe is, and surely the recipe changes. The broader picture, actually, and, and I think it's become a more positive picture since I wrote Getting Better, the broader picture is, is one of progress. If you look at, you know, the world's poorest countries, they're still considerably richer now than they were in the 60s. And, you know, many of them were as poor in the 1960s as you could ever have been. So there wasn't, you know, much further down to go. And so we are seeing progress. And, you know, China's story, I mean, for all at the moment, the United States is worried about the possibility of a new Cold War and all of that. And there are a lot of other quality of life challenges in China, huge human rights violations. I will say that the you know, income change in China has been part of a massively positive change in sort of global quality of life because, you know, China makes up such a large portion of the globe. The income change, the health change we've seen in China has been a, a really good thing. And India in the last sort of 15, 20 years, again, you wouldn't necessarily say it's been heading in the right direction on, on, on measures of democracy, sadly not. But in terms of other measures of the quality of life, it's been doing a lot better. So we've seen 
progress, even in income, this, you know, when I was writing Getting Better, that was the sort of the downside story was income hasn't been improving everywhere. I think were I to rewrite it today, I'd be a little bit more positive on income, a little more negative on, on democracy, and probably still as optimistic as ever on, on health and education. I think there's a strain in the book that you throw up your hands a bit, because I think you, you say that, look, Unless you're North Korea or Venezuela or, you know, Zimbabwe during hyperinflation, you're going to see improvement in spite of or because of the, the policies that, that we've seen. And, and I suppose there's been a great deal of, of variation. But one thing that we can say is that the Paul Ehrlich's kind of prognosis has turned out not to be quite as grim. And in fact, I interviewed him a few weeks ago. It certainly has not turned out to be the case that the Malthusian trap was going to be uh, getting worse in, in the 21st century. And a lot of this is really due to the health, the improve, improving health, right, with pandemic diseases, which takes us to the next book. But I find it astonishing that, say, the life expectancy in a place like Costa Rica can be more or less the same as that in the U.S. Or Kerala has the life expectancy that's more or less the same as a place like Lithuania, even though the per capita spend on healthcare is, is just a tiny fraction in, in a place like Kerala compared to parts of you. How closely tied is our health outcomes to expenditures and investment and resources? It depends on the health expenditure you talk about, I guess. There's been a long-standing sort of problem, and maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, lack of relationship in the data between number of doctors per, per capita, number of doctors per person in a country, and the life expectancy in that country. And I don't think that means, you know, doctors are all quacks or anything like that. They, they, you know, they perform really valuable functions. I have two stents. I am very grateful to doctors. You know, please don't take anything away from this, any surgeon who is listening. At the same time, it does seem that the sort of the most cost effective, the, you know, there are a bunch of really cheap and very effective health technologies out there that don't actually require doctors and hospitals. You know, doctors and hospitals are what kick in in the health system when the health has gone wrong, if you will. And the and best ways to keep a population healthy is not to have them get sick in the first place. So it is things like vaccines. It is things like bed nets. It's things like clean water and sanitation. These are the technologies that have really created a global health revolution. And they're not terribly expensive, most of them. Sanitation systems can get up there, actually. You know, building a sewage network in a large city is a multi-billion dollar operation. But still, you know, comparatively, they're pretty cheap. And so uh, what happens in hospitals is a really small part of the overall health story, if you will, most of which is happening, thankfully, you know, outside of hospitals before people need to go to hospital. And that part is comparatively cheap. And so I think that helps explain why you can see you know, much poorer countries seeing uh, similar health outcomes to the United States. You know, also, frankly, there are problems with modernity and health. So the more we're all sitting around and not you know, doing. No, we should be we should be doing this standing up. The more we have access to, you know, very cheap calories, some of the choices we make are not good for their health. The more I have access to nice French wine, the worse it is for my health. I mean, so there are a bunch of things. Wait, hold on. We French wine is good for you. We know that. <laughs> like all things in moderation, and I strive to that goal. But we do make choices to spend our income in ways that don't maximise our health outcomes. And so all of this sort of drives a fairly loose relationship between income and health. That said, if you look at the last year, for example, and how rapidly, thankfully, we developed COVID-19 vaccines, the research behind that was largely carried out in, in rich countries, not completely by any means, but largely carried out in, in rich countries and involved 
you know, fairly sizable expenditures on RNA technology and then, you know, moving into the particular research behind the COVID-19 vaccine itself. And a lot of components of that, you know, how you make the lipid bits that go into it and so on. I mean, you know, it, it was actually a, a pretty complex technological endeavor, which has billions and billions of dollars of research might behind it. And so, you know, while it might be hard at the country level to see a close relationship between doctors, nurses and hospitals per capita and health outcomes, I think the world as a whole being rich enough to be able to afford quite large research endeavors is part of a story behind uh, global health. What you're saying really is that the kind of marginal benefit per dollar spent is kind of all over the map, depending on kind of where you're spending it and on what are you spending it. And probably in the U.S., we've gotten to the point where it's, you know, maybe negative <laughs> at some level. I was reading uh, Nicholas Christiakis's book, and he was talking about how the reduced amount of health care that people are receiving during the pandemic might actually be good for them, you know, depending on circumstances. Apollo Zaro, fantastic book. And yes, and I mean, we've seen similar things before, right? So during the, during the Second World War, sort of, if you took out the bad influence of violence on health and looked at the UK, the fact that everybody was on a balanced diet because there was rationing yeah, no was sugar. actually good for their health. Yeah, one of my colleagues <laughs> did research on the sugar uh, rationing and, and the impact of sugar rationing on downstream diabetes and so forth, which is pretty amazing. If we think that, hey, you can spend a very small amount of money for a huge impact in some places versus a, a large amount elsewhere, do we need to have some way of putting a dollar value on this? You know, you mentioned that we spent $2 trillion on aid and you know, maybe some of this was used in a very good way, some of it wasn't used in a good way. Don't we need to have some dollar value? I mean, I think, I know during the current crisis when whenever an economist stands up and, and says, you know, we need a dollar value on human life, it creates a, an uproar. Like, how dare you put a dollar value on human life? But it seems to me like every time you buy a Starbucks, you're basically putting a dollar value on human life because that same $5 Starbucks could have paid for a vaccine or could have paid for some hydration fluids. Or, you know, there are people that are dying in these countries because they, they don't have $5 for antibiotics or something like that. No, I agree with you. It's, it's morally reprehensible and we do it every day. Every choice we make it effectively does that. And it's interesting, you know, the way we come up with a, a statistical value of life, you know, to use in calculations about how much are we willing to pay to rid the risk of death in, in various ways. We do it by looking at human behavior, how much people sort of willing to pay in their everyday life to reduce their risk of dying. We take their decisions and we sort of add them up and we say, right, that's the value of life we're going to use. The problem with it is, is that richer people are willing to spend more on saving their lives than poorer people. So if you sort of follow that approach to the end of the line, you get values of life in developing countries that are a fraction of the value of life in rich countries. And frankly, you get values of lives of poor people in rich countries that are, you know, fractions of values of life of rich people. Again, in fact, that's the way the world does work at the moment. I think putting it in those terms makes people feel correctly, morally uncomfortable. I think the response shouldn't be, right, well, we'll never do that calculation again. It should be, well, you know, why does it make us feel morally uncomfortable? And should we be doing something about it? Maybe this suggests something about fair tax rates, as it might be. Maybe it suggests something about how much effort we should be trying to make in order to sure, ensure the countries on the planet with the lowest life expectancy have a higher life expectancy because we can do it for so little money. I think it ought to push us in the way of those discussions 
rather than just lead to this kind of, ah, this is a horrible approach, how dare you? you know, because as you say, we are doing it every day. We're just trying to sort of live with ourselves by not accept, you know, not owning up to the fact that we are doing it every day. When you wrote this book, The Plague Cycle, and I probably don't need to ask you why you wrote it, because I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that something happened in the world that made us want to think about this. But I was trained as an historian, and I was always puzzled by the lack of attention that was given to things like pestilence and, and disease. And when we think about the horses of the apocalypse, I think war certainly gets a lot of attention and uh, and famine probably gets a little bit less. But pestilence is something which, yeah, okay, there are these big epidemics that like the Black Death that, that get, get attention, but sort of the underlying diseases that just persisted throughout human history. They don't really, I remember when I first read William McNeil's book, I was like, oh, okay, this is a whole area of history that deserves its own field and it, it doesn't really get a whole lot of attention and it can help. No, there's been, now there's been a whole literature. There's a book that came out recently about the mosquito that basically said that, you know, pretty much every battle in the last 10,000 years was more or less decided by, you know, who was able to manage malaria and other diseases better than the, the other one. Why do you suppose, first of all, this was never really given a lot of attention? And then secondly, why are we now paying attention to it? And, and are we really paying attention to it? Because I remember, you know, the 1918 flu and pandemic, even though there were a whole bunch of books that came out in 2018 about the 1980, I read like six of them. It was more or less forgotten by everybody. When people would, when these books came out in 2018, people were like, what, really? Oh, wow. Half that many people died. Wow. They, they had no idea. So why has it kind of historically been ignored? And to what do you attribute kind of a revival of interest pre this pandemic? I think maybe it's been historically ignored because it was just such a given. You know, it was such a background of everyday life and pretty much was an, an inevitability. You know, most people were dying of infectious diseases for most of history every year, year in, year out. And the, the pandemic strike an interest because then, you know, eight times as many are dying of infectious diseases in a single year. But, you know, the, the sort of the background deaths from smallpox and measles and so on go, go unnoticed because it's the way the world is. And that's why, I mean, if you, if you look for historical sources sort of writing anguished uh, reports on smallpox deaths, you, you won't really find very many of them. And it's because, well, you know, of course, it is God's will. It is the way things are. And, and so, you know, unlike battles or regicides or the, the, the kind of thing that fills your average history book, those were noted at the time and, <laughs> and reported on at length. And infectious disease wasn't. Uh, it was just sort of part of the life of the household, if you will. Your 1918 point is fascinating. I mean, as you say, I think, I think the flu was, 1918 flu was very rapidly forgotten. And in a way, it was lucky that we had 1918 happen just before 1920, and that at least it revived some awareness. Although I will say, if you look at the National Bureau of Economic Research Working Paper Series, it had a spike last year in, in the number of papers. And a lot of those papers were about the 1918 flu. And you know, what could we learn by doing statistical analysis of what different states and so on did in 1918? And I you know, wish those papers had been written a little bit before the middle of last year. Sorry, they were written at the start of last year, published very rapidly for economists, you know, in, in May, June last year. But, I, you know, I wish we'd been learning that stuff a bit, bit earlier. And, you know, I, I think the reason it's sort of come back to prominence is partially because people have got scared by recent events. 
you know, we've had AIDS, we've had Ebola, we've had SARS, we've had MERS. We had a bunch of, you know, more or less close calls, depending where you were. For, you know, for, for many people, sadly, there weren't close calls. They were death sentences. But for most of us, there were close calls. And that created sort of new interest in, in the threat. It may, to be less generous to humanity, it may also just be that there was a period there where we were running out of other threats. And so, you know, we didn't have the Cold War. We didn't yet have China to worry about. There was sort of this gap in the threats. And so we need to worry about something. Maybe maybe pandemics was the thing we started worrying about. So I think maybe there was some of that. But also, I think partially just sort of a, a growing recognition of what could really be, you know, the biggest threat this century to humanity. You know, climate change is a huge threat. But frankly, there is no chance this century, it's going to wipe out a significant proportion of humankind. I think there is that risk still with pandemics. I, I think we'll probably avoid it, but there's that risk still with pandemics. And so, you know, behind nuclear weapons, I think it's the, the, the most obvious source to go to if you're looking for a real existential crisis this century. And more and more people started noticing that that was true. And I think that might have helped as well. Yeah, well, I think also, in addition to people ignoring it historically for centuries, it became a lot easier to not think about it in the wake of all the 20th century's advancements. I mean, I think one of the good things, one of the great things about this book, The Plague Cycle, is that you remind people, you know, how bad things really were. And I don't just mean like the Justinian plague or the Black Death, and those are pretty miserable. But, you know, when you talk about how 200 years ago, half of all people died before their fifth birthday, and people wouldn't even give their kids names until after they had survived their, their bout of measles, which was more or less inevitable. Do you think the 20th century, I'd love to go back and talk about the Middle Ages and everything else and the conquest of the Americas, but do you think that the 20th century gave people a, an overly optimistic view of the potential of science and was able to, at least people in the West, just became completely oblivious to the, these diseases, at least until the onset of Ebola and HIV and so forth. And we managed to eradicate so many diseases. I definitely think there's something to that, that the combination of sort of improved sanitation and better housing and so on, followed by vaccines and antibiotics, made infection a bit of a sort of a distant force in people's lives for, for much of the 20th century. And frankly, I think that's one of the reasons that the anti-vaxxer movement gained steam was it was quite easy to worry about the risk of vaccinations when, for most people, they'd never seen a case of measles, certainly never seen smallpox. So you know, the very success that we've had against infection made it seem like a, a bit of a distant threat. The advantage, if you will, for, for public health professionals worried about that kind of thing is that infection has been such a major part of human evolution that we actually have a bunch of sort of evolved responses to worry about it. And so, you know, even in the period pre-COVID, you know, we had periodic mass mass hysteria almost about the risk of infection. I mean, the extent to which the the market for for antibacterial goods expanded, you know, you could get antibacterial everything in 2000 and aughts when we were going through one of the latest spikes in infection fear. So I guess the good news is while while we seem to forget the lesson, you know, the actual valuable lessons of past infections. I mean, you know, one of the things I think that's really sad about the 1918 flu is, you know, at the time we were having the discussion about masks, at the time we were having the discussion about social distancing, at the time we were having discussions about school closures and their impacts and stuff like that, we kind of forgot it all. The underlying fear still remains. Uh, 
for good and ill, by the way. I mean, for good in that it's fairly easy to, to ramp up concern about pandemics again. For ill, that it's a major force. And, and you know, we've seen tragically recently a, a major force for behaving badly towards the other, whoever the other is, you know, in this case, Asians and Asian Americans, for example. So it's far from an unal- unalloyed good. But I think it is probably a reason to think that there'll always be a market for the next book being worried about infectious disease to those who come after me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's an interesting point that there's a, a latent human fear of infection, which manifests itself as disgust or xenophobia or whatever. And at least since the days of, of Pasteur, right, we have a you know germophobia. And in fact, prior to the pandemic, I would argue that most of us were having conversations about the cleanliness hypothesis. And if anything, we were more concerned about too few pathogens uh, as opposed to too many. And so you can push a button and push a lever and and immediately activate to this. I was just shopping yesterday and I I saw them spraying everything with antimicrobials at the um, grocery store. And of course, this is after it's been announced that this is pointless. Here in the Bay Area, if you if you go jogging, you you darn well better go jogging with your mask. So we we are able to activate those things when we need to keep disease at, at bay. Absolutely, as you say, and the trouble being that we can activate too hard. So we massively over-prescribe antibiotics, even when they're not a microbe is not what's behind the disease, or at least a bacteria isn't what's behind the disease. We use too much, spray too much DDT. You know, we we can go sort of too far the other way as well and thereby weaken some of some of our defenses. So, you know, overprescription of antibiotics is one of the factors behind the, the rise of antibiotic resistance uh, amongst bacteria, you know, which is becoming a major killer. And so sort of, you know, ironically, worrying too much about this can be as bad as not worrying enough. Yeah, you talk about the book. I was astonished to see that, I don't know whether this was from the more recent book or the older book, but where you, you say that in China, they prescribed 10 times the amount of antibiotics per capita as we do in the U.S., 10 times. And of course, in the U.S., we prescribe already way too much, particularly to agricultural uses. This is, seems to be setting a stage for the kind of the era of antibiotics is going to draw to a close, right? And aren't we going to return to an era where pathogens and microbes are going to be much more dangerous? Gosh, I hope not. I mean, for a start, it would make a, a lot of modern surgery pretty much deadly. It would make a lot of the rest of modern surgery immensely more painful. And before we had antibiotics, the the way you kind of protected against infection spreading through a, a wound was debridement, which basically meant scraping out all the bits that look like they might get infected, which is scraping out a lot, you know, massively painful, very dangerous. Uh, maggots. Maggots are coming back, right? Maggots are coming back. Yeah. So, you know, and that's that's to say nothing of the people who just die from the resistant infections themselves. So I hope not. And there is, you know, some hope uh, looking forward that we'll develop more antimicrobials. So, I, you know, I don't think it's by any means a, a done deal. We should not give up the fight. I'd also say the United States in this way is actually a bit of a positive lesson in that over just the last sort of five, 10 years, we have seen a dramatic reduction in use of antibiotics on the farm for growth promotion, which was, you know, one of the reasons China is using so much antibiotics is nearly all of these antibiotics are going to animals. And a lot of it is for growth promotion. And that's something that Denmark started phasing out decades ago. The United States has started doing it. A bunch of other countries have started doing it. They've discovered that it's not actually that expensive. It doesn't have a big impact on the productivity of farms and so on. So, you know, we're finding that actually we can reduce some of the worst ways we're overusing these things. If we combine that with better better policies around 
which antibiotics are used for what purpose, better prescription uh, regimens, and a lot more research into new antimicrobials. And I have a lot of hope we can we can fix this problem, but it's one we need to work on with some serious degree of urgency. The UK government a few years ago came up with a, an estimate that it would be you know killing millions a year antimicrobial resistant bugs would be killing you know millions a year uh, within a very short period of time. And so it's a problem to deal with today, not to wait around until it gets worse. Well, you mentioned some very low-tech ways of improving health that, that don't involve a lot of modern scientific know-how. I mean, obviously vaccines are cheap, but they're built on fairly sophisticated science. You know, the building of latrines, for instance, is something that's fairly old-school technology. And I think you mentioned that it wasn't that long ago that only 5% of, of Indians had access to toilets of, of any kind, and that there's a big movement in India now to start getting people to villages to build toilets. And, and then when you talk about, for instance, hydration, I found it astonishing that the standard practice in many areas that had uh, cholera was to deny fluids to the people who had cholera when, in fact, you know, simple hydration mixtures can save so many lives. That seems like the kind of knowledge or low-tech uh, and low-cost ways of continuing to see improvements in life expectancy. Absolutely. And the story I tell in the book of any doctor who worked on you know, what was the right solution to dealing with diarrhea, which, as you say, is giving more fluids, not taking them away. And so previously, the, the thing you do if somebody walked in who was obviously dehydrated from diarrheal diseases is you would hook them up to an intravenous drip. Which is great if you have, you know, sanitary facilities, if you've got lots of sugar salt solution in intravenous bags lying around. You know, not the case in many places. He was working in, in refugee camps on the border with Bangladesh. You know, they didn't have any very many. And so his sort of low-tech response was, we're going to take the same basic idea. We're going to take the sugar salt solution, but rather than doing it intravenously, we're just going to stick it in people's mouths, thus oral rehydration. Traditional way you rehydrate, right? You drink water. And he just would mix up giant barrels of sugar and salt and water and you know hand it out to people and say, you know, give it to your sick loved one and give it to them until they really can't stand taste of this stuff. Because if you're really dehydrated, sugar and salt and water taste fantastic. If you want, uh, after you've watched or listened to this podcast, go try mixing up some sugar and salt and water and drink it now you'll discover it tastes horrible. And that's because you're already properly rehydrated. So it's a fantastic cure because it doesn't require, you know, sterile bags and all that kind of stuff. It's also a fantastic solution because you can self-medicate. The point when you want to stop drinking it is when it starts tasting horrible. Well, I was wondering if you could talk about the slow diffusion of information around health. You know, we know it took a couple hundred years for knowledge about scurvy prevention to diffuse. And you talk in, in the book about how long it took for variolation as a as an idea to disseminate. And so it's, it seems like it takes a long time for knowledge to spread. But also, I think in, in today's world, we tend to fetishize kind of high tech solutions. And so, for instance, you know, people talk about how there's only one, you know, one doctor per 100,000 people in, in a country like Liberia. And so this is, this is an absolute disaster. But you know, I don't see why you need to know the Latin name for a ligament to administer oral hydration. Do, should we be, you know, making healthcare and, and medicine more accessible by by emphasizing the easy low-hanging fruit. I remember people were talking about how without ventilators, one ventilator in, in, in uh, Burkina Faso, right? And so like everyone's going to die of COVID in Burkina Faso without ventilators. And I, I think we've discovered that there are simpler ways of dealing with a lot of these ailments, right? That's 
true, and it's why many sort of you know China had its barefoot doctors, for example. These weren't fully trained, you know, seven-year college graduates. Uh, these were doctors trained, uh, medical professionals trained in rather simple approaches, the kinds that could save most lives. And and you know, most vaccination programs worldwide are not done by not doctors or nurses. They're they're done by vaccination staff with a far lower level of of education and so on. So I think that's a lesson that has been sort of learned, if you will, in, in the developing world. And it's a good thing because, as you say, there just aren't the doctors and nurses there in order to deliver on these more effective treatments. It still sort of brings us back to what you were talking about earlier, the, the discussions we'd rather not have on the trade-offs this involves. It's true that you know you can get a long way towards higher life expectancy using these simple approaches. On the other hand, I mean, take insulin, which is a fairly simple thing that lots of people in the United States give themselves insulin shots when they need them in order to keep their diabetes at bay. Completely unaffordable in large parts of the world. And so this you know, fairly simple technology doesn't require daily intervention by doctors and nurses is out of reach of diabetics over much of the world. So I don't want to go too far in saying all you need is the cheap, easy stuff. Some of the easy stuff isn't cheap and some of the cheap stuff isn't easy. And we're still going to see big divergence in the, in the quality of life and the quality of health worldwide until we get a considerably larger base of sort of you know, public health and health infrastructure in the poorest countries. I think one of the things that surprised a lot of people in public health is the disparate impact of coronavirus on in highly developed countries and, and you know less developed countries. The data is obviously very difficult to evaluate, but there seems to be evidence, there's, it seems suggestive that the, the death rate and serious illness rate in you know, more developed countries like, like Italy and, and France, Spain, the U.S., seem to be much, much worse than countries like India and parts of Africa. And if this is true, it seems to be, even you know, after you control for age, if this is true, this seems to be, a, in many ways, a harkens back to the days that you described when the Europeans would go to Africa, the, the slave traders and the Royal African Company would, would go to Africa and, and you know, would have a 90% mortality rate in the first year or so. And it used to be that the, the Europeans were the ones that had to fear disease uh, more than the people in these other countries. Does this say something about kind of the at least in, in this respect, the underlying fragility of the health in the more developed worlds, you know, with more inf inflammatory diseases and more uh, diabetes and other kinds of impairments. I mean, you know, vitamin D deficiency seems to be, some people think that this is something which is, they know it's correlated. They don't know the extent to which it's a causal relationship, but there, there seem to be some underlying health fragilities in, in the developed countries that the developing countries have been able to withstand. Perhaps it's exposure to other a litany of coronaviruses and, and constant exposure and activation of immune system that, that seems to be protecting them, at least in, in, this one, in this one pandemic, if not the others. So a, a caveat I should have said earlier in our discussion, uh, I'm neither a doctor nor an epidemiologist, and I shouldn't try and play one uh, on TV <laughs> or podcasts. Uh, me neither. I, I, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. I think you've mentioned you know, what I've heard as, as being you know, some, some of the explanations for what seems to be a lower death rate. We've got data inadequacies. We just don't know. You know we've never had decent mortality records for most developing countries, and, and we haven't suddenly started. So we're very unclear on 
on death rates. We're particularly unclear on death rates that are, you know, COVID death rates rather than deaths from something else. Uh, we've got climate factors maybe playing a role. We've got, as you say, previous exposure to other coronaviruses that might be providing some level of protection. We've got the age factors. You know, there are a bunch of explanations, none of which needs to be all-encompassing. Indeed, you know, quite probably it's some combination and we just don't, we don't know all that well. I do think it is interesting that we are seeing in rich countries where rates of sort of infectious prevalence are just a lot lower. How big we, again, as far as I understand, we don't know behind things like uh, rising allergy rates. If you look at what happened to Mungo Park, who's my sort of favourite Scottish explorer, people do seem to be, you know, their immune system is still reacting to something. And that does seem to be maybe one factor when he went off to find what at the time was sort of the legendary city of Timbuktu. No Western explorer had been there at least before. He sort of sets off with a a crew of, I think it's 42. All but he and one other fellow on the expedition do die from some form of infection. He and and the last person with him actually uh, possibly drown because they're being attacked by the Tuareg who aren't particularly happy that they're around. They jump off their boat into the river. So you do see these massively high infectious uh, mortality risks. I wouldn't want to overplay how much that's sort of due to genetic factors. It's largely due to the fact that you know they hadn't been exposed before, whereas most of the people who were still around, sort of native to Africa, had been exposed before. You know, they died as children if they got these sicknesses. So you know, it's not so. There is a genetic element to this story around you know sickle cells and so on. But largely, I think this is probably just a story of these adults arrived having not been exposed to a whole load of stuff that children were exposed to if you've been you know born and lived in Africa it is very much the same story as what happened in the Americas you know after Columbus first arrived you had a whole population that hadn't been exposed to smallpox you had a whole population that probably hadn't been exposed to measles and you know a bunch of other diseases and all of a sudden all of them get exposed you know like with covid-19 the difference with covid-19 being that it, it seems everywhere to have affected the oldest the most with these other diseases, it affected everybody and probably children even more. And that's why you see these sort of 80, 90% die-offs in the new world in the you know century after Columbus arrives. So, you know, Columbus visits upon the new world what the old world visited upon Mungo Park, if you will. You know, this is what happens when you walk into a new disease environment without any previous exposure. And it's pretty grim. Well, I mean, a lot of development economists have talked about the relationship between the health environment and the disease environment and what we might think of as as economic progress. But I think some were puzzled by, you know, once that floor has been flattened out somewhat, you still see these kind of persistent memories, right? So the institutional architecture of a society seems to have been imprinted in some way by these legacy uh, health characteristics from centuries ago. Can can you talk a little bit about that? And how do people think about that today? You you talk about Jim Robinson and... Ashmoglu and and, and Robinson, they're fantastic uh, book, Why Nations Fail, partially based off an earlier article of theirs that basically said, if you look at the places where colonists died really fast, those are the places that are poorest today. And the logic was that the colonists set up these institutions that were very extractive. You went, you made as much money as quickly as you could in the hope that you didn't die before you could spend it back at home. And you know th- those extractive institutions remained. I should say, I think there's some pushback amongst historians of disease, not least, about their numbers on colonial death rates. But sort of 
leaving that aside, you know, it seems to me plausible that the general rate of infection in a place has a bunch of effects on behaviours and probably on, on institutions too. There seems to be evidence that in more infectious environments, people are more scared of strangers. That makes sense, especially, you know, if it's a human-to-human infection, staying away from other humans is a really good way not to get sick. Aren't we all learning that over the last year and a half? So it sort of makes sense that there would be that mechanism. And being more afraid of strangers means less exchange, means, you know, less learning from outside and so on and so forth. So there are mechanisms that they don't talk about that still seem to me plausible reasons to think that cultures might develop in different ways under different burdens of disease, if you will, but different burdens of infectious disease with long-term effects. I'd also say you don't even need the long-term effect story. If you've ever had malaria... It's pretty grim. It lays you flat for a lot longer than the, you know, two or three days that people are complaining about after their second COVID shot. It's a real burden on productivity. Being dead is an even bigger burden on productivity. And so there are all sorts of reasons to think that high infectious disease burdens are going to have sort of effects on the way that cultures operate and effects on the way that individuals operate, both of which are likely to be a real drain on productivity. And I do think that one of the reasons we are seeing such dramatic progress in sort of non-health areas in developing countries over the last few decades is that health has got so much better. We have a student body that is more able to learn because it is, you know, less sick. We've got parents deciding it's worth having their kids in school because they're not going to die. So it's worth making the investment of having them in school rather than working in the fields. We've got adults who are healthy enough to work you know i could i could go on it seems to be you know fairly intuitive and backed up by economics that there's going to be a link you have a longer life expectancy you take less risky behavior right as well if you're quite likely to die of something tomorrow your feelings about you know going off to fight a dangerous battle today are going to be different than if you think if you don't fight the dangerous battle you're probably going to live to 90 you know, you mentioned that plague was considered a, a disease of trade. And you also talk about how in some African societies, they would more or less meet at the border and do their trade. I remember reading stories back you know, when I was doing business history about the border stones and everybody would like leave goods on the border stone and then go away and come back the next day and there would be some different merchandise there. And you mentioned this may have been a way of interrupting the diffusion of disease. We live in a world where you can travel completely around the world in a tiny fraction of the time that it took Magellan to go around the world and everybody seems to be connected with everybody, it seems inevitable that you know any disease that pops up pretty much anywhere in the world, any zoonotic kind of disease that comes over is going to scale and go worldwide almost instantly. It looks like we're, we're going to run out of these other species fairly quickly and we won't have any more diseases to, to catch from them, right? I hadn't thought of that upside to the declining biodiversity. It seems like the wrong way to deal with the problem. I think the short answer is yes, but the level of globalization you need in order to spread diseases globally it is about what we had with Columbus, right? So it only takes a few sailing ships to go across the Atlantic and, and come back to take um, a bunch of infectious diseases over. They don't all arrive with Columbus, but you know they arrive fairly soon thereafter. And he brings syphilis back with his crew and then Vasco da Gama brings that syphilis around the Horn of Africa to India uh, with his crew. It really doesn't take very much in the way of globalization to cause you know, disease spread. And my colleague, Michael Clemens, has a fantastic paper looking at how fast recent pandemics have spread. And he has data on the 1918 flu, for example. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's say it's like two weeks longer than it took COVID to spread globally. It's not very much less. 
1918 is a heck of a long time ago. We had a heck of a lot less globalization than we do now. And indeed, if you look at what COVID-19 has done to international air travel, it's knocked us back to sort of the level of the 1990s. All that we've done in the past year has you know, only taken us back a decade or so in terms of reduced travel. So it's sort of implausible to imagine and would be a disaster if we tried to try and reduce globalization to the extent we'd need to in order to make that our primary defense against infectious outbreaks spreading against pandemics. Now, if I was New Zealand or Taiwan at the moment, I would definitely be having very strict quarantines in place. They've got the disease completely under control in their own country. You know, the only way it's going to spark up is if it comes from outside. You know, stop it at the border. I get that. But you know, those are sadly the few exceptions. You know, most of the world that ship has long since sailed. So that can't be our number one defense, which means our number one defense has to be stopping the pandemic where it starts. It has to be a global response. You know, if China had acted a bit more rapidly, perhaps we could have stopped it. You know, well, like SARS one. SARS one was SARS one, you know, it what eight thousand people got it and it was ended, right? If in Europe, Italy hadn't botched its response, followed by most of the rest of Europe. If in the United States, we hadn't botched our response, you know, followed by Brazil and India and so on. You know, maybe we could have we could have closed this down a lot faster. That we continue botching the response is the reason for these variants emerging. You know, pretty much we are all reliant on the rest of the world to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And it is the only way we will prevent it happening again, is making sure that you know there is enough sort of global capacity national and global capacity to shut down these outbreaks as rapidly as possibly we can at the beginning of the pandemic, because it's the only way, absent going back to pre-Columbian levels of globalization, that we're going to stay safe. Well, I think a lot of people would argue that once the cat was out of the bag, not much you could do, right? Once if, you know, especially if it we're able to do track and trace and lock down and do all this and do it effectively in China and, and New Zealand and Korea and the US, once it made it to say India, game over. And so what 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 I was wondering, given your perspective, there's a lot of controversy over what the optimal response should have been in, in the US in terms of trade-offs, whether we're talking about impact of economic impact, other delayed health impacts psychological impact on kids versus disease transmission reduction. Set that aside, do you think that in terms of the developing world, that clearly the optimal policy in the developing world has to be different than the optimal policy in the developed world? I think for everyone I know, the idea of hunkering down for a year and working online and using Instacart to get your groceries, you know, it's not that bad, especially as we see all of our stock prices go, you know, double over the year. Like I think most people I know are aren't really suffering all that much. But you know, when, when Modi decided to lock down India, this probably killed a lot of people, if not now, down the road, given vaccine uptake reductions, giving educational losses. I mean, it would seem that the idea of uh, a mis thinking that you can, I mean, I think there's 65% positivity in most poor parts of India now, in spite of all these efforts. Do you think that having a one-size-fits-all healthcare policy that where the people in, in the developed countries more or less define the optimal policy and it's imported lock and stock into the developing world is a potential problem? Is there a way that we can kind of fine tune these responses so that they take into consideration local conditions? I take your point completely, you know, including the fact that once COVID-19 had spread as far as it had, it was going to spread everywhere and there, there, there wasn't much we could do about it. I take that. I think that's, that's right. And yes, we need to have a different response in 
developing countries or you know countries are different with different capacities in all sorts of areas i mean not just healthcare but also as you say sort of what's their labor force doing is it plausible to imagine they can do it from home if they can't do it from home do we have financial systems in place that mean we can actually make sure that they have enough money that they can afford to stay home that they can you know buy food without working and so on and you know sadly the fact of the matter is at the moment in large parts uh, of the world those systems aren't in place. And so, you know, it's just implausible to imagine you could keep in place uh, a lockdown over any extended period of time. You, you'd be forcing people into a decision about do they starve or do they ignore the rules on lockdown? So I think you're absolutely right. And it, you know, yet again, brings into stark relief the inequalities that, that we have in this world, that different choices are going to have to be made. I am very glad I wasn't a policymaker in the developing world this year because I think they probably were faced with some, you know, really horrible choices. And they were faced with some really horrible choices in the absence of great information because there was so much we didn't know about COVID. And so, you know, I, I think bad decisions were made by policymakers the world over, uh, in, including in parts of the developing world. I go back to this speaks to the importance of dealing with these things before they spread. And, you know, it only increases the urgency of making sure that global institutions, including the World Health Organization and the international health regulations and so on, are much better able to respond in the next pandemic than they were in this pandemic. I think, you know, the World Health Organization did pretty well, all things considered. It, you know, made some mistakes on masking. Maybe it should have pushed China harder, faster. You know, maybe it should have pushed the US and Italy and others harder, faster. You know, it did some pretty amazing things given its capacities uh, in this pandemic, but it didn't have all the capacities it needed. And, and the lesson has to be, you know, more for next time, please, more capacity. Are you concerned that some of the progress that I think you describe in this book, particularly with respect to public health, vaccine uptake, and the improvements that we've seen in education in particular in India, I think primary schools are still closed. We now have all the, the data. And yet, what is the impact of that going to be in terms of the reduced education? Is that going to have long-term lasting impacts in terms of life expectancy reduction? Should we be concerned that progress is getting reversed? I think it's too early to tell. Let me give you my hopeful scenario which is early data from South Africa. It looks like nearly all the parents who pulled their kids out of school have put their kids back in school. And I hope that, you know, is a pattern that we will see worldwide. And there is some evidence that learning losses from gaps in education can be made up, you know, with the right policies and with the right sort of nurturing in the classroom. But in you know, previous cases where we've seen education disrupted, you know, times like uh, Hurricane Katrina, for example, the, the evidence is that, that learning losses can be recovered. Now, as you're pointing out, these have been really long absences from school. And the longer they go on, the more likely it is that some kids won't go back ever. And the more likely it is that the learning losses will be permanent. And so, you know, even my sort of optimistic hope has to be tinged with realism that no, this is this is going to have a long term effect. It's going to have a long term effect in all sorts of different ways. I, I also think just sort of the the fact that we haven't been connecting nearly as much is going to have a long-term drag in all sorts of ways. The, the most positive force for sort of global progress overall is people connecting with one another. You only need to look at the COVID vaccines to know that's true because we've got these vaccines that were developed by Turkish immigrants with the support of underlying technology that, you know, Hungarian research in the United States has developed and manufactured by a company run by a Greek who lives in the United States. I mean, 
you know, this is the stuff that makes for progress. And we've had a year of pretty much shutting that down. And so I do think there are going to be long-term effects from this. You know, there's going to be the lost education. There's going to be the lost income. There are going to be countries with debt burdens that are going to look pretty ugly. For all sorts of reasons, I, I think this is you know, more than a pause. It's been backwards for a year, uh, but it may also you know, dampen down the rates of progress. My hope is that we get back to where we were and better pre-pandemic. And I think there are some reasons for that hope. You know, we were making hugely rapid progress in, in global health before the pandemic. This pandemic has led to an acceleration in research around RNA vaccines. And, you know, in the pipeline are malaria vaccines, TB vaccines, AIDS vaccines. Last year, those three killed more than COVID did. If we can get those vaccines online, that is going to have a transformative effect on health in low and middle income countries. So, you know, that's that's one part of the hope. Another part of the hope is I mentioned earlier that there's been sort of democratic backsliding worldwide. I think the world is waking up a bit to the importance of not having of having strong leadership during a pandemic. And some of the leaders that were most gung-ho at the start of the pandemic have already gone. Others look to be in trouble. So, you know, maybe maybe a return to sort of responsible global leadership too will come out of this. And I hope, you know, in the global part of that, that the last year has taught us all how completely connected we all are and how we need stronger global institutions to deal with these problems. So I have some hope we come out of this having learned some lessons, hard, hard won lessons, you know, immense tragic costs. But we come out the other side having learned some lessons that actually set us up for a, a better half of the decade. But, you know, I admit that's that's a hope, not a certainty by any means. Wow, I love the optimism. Before I let you go, I have to give you an opportunity to pitch your kid's book. You know, I don't know if you have a, a copy handy you can show us, but what the heck inspired you to write a kid's book? And tell us what it's about. Why should we get one for our kids? Thanks very much. Uh, called Your World Better, Global Progress and What You Can Do About It. It is covers similar territory to Getting Better, but is a completely different text, I promise. I have a middle school child who is a, a wonderful human being, but is somewhat depressed about the state of the planet. And after the last year, you can hardly blame her. All of her friends are, are the same. And, you know, there's a lot to that. They worry a lot about climate. They have been through the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, understand all of the tragedy we've faced over the past centuries when it comes to inequalities. They, they, most of them were at the, the Women's March four years ago. You know, they, they know there are a bunch of big problems out there. My fear is that they don't know that there's sort of hope on the other side, or at least there's hope for improvements. And so Your World Better is basically talking about the history of, of progress in, in health, in education, in, in what homes look like, in democracy, in civil rights, in equality, um, but also you know, looking at an environment, the good trends and the bad trends there. So looking at past progress, looking at the problems that remain, the huge problems that remain, and then asking, well, you know, What's it realistic to ask a middle schooler to do about it? And I hope the book is kind of pretty optimistic, but not too optimistic. It's meant to take these kids back from a feeling of, of helpless despair towards one of you know cautious optimism and wanting to do something to make sure things get better. And you know that's sort of the driving force behind the book. It's available free on my website, so you can just download the PDF. Uh, but if you buy a copy on Amazon where it is available, author royalties will go to UNICEF because you know this is a book partially that talks about how important it is to work together globally. And so UNICEF seemed like a good place to throw the money. What there is. Well, you had a very productive COVID. Plague cycle, 
check it out. Great history. Bring it up to the present. Give us some context around COVID and also your world better. Check it out. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.